Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we reflect on the latest mass shooting in America, this time in Las Vegas. How do you talk about this horrific event without talking about ways to reduce gun violence? Coming up, public health expert David Hemingway will join us to reflect on that question and more. And we'll get context on U.S. gun culture from a Wesleyan University professor who's organizing this year's annual Shasha Seminar for Human Concerns. The symposium happens at the end of the month and will focus on guns in American society. That's later. Now, we want to hear from you this hour. What's on your mind since news broke that more than 50 people have been killed, more than 500 injured at an outdoor music festival? Each time a mass shooting occurs, attention turns to D.C. and whether Congress will change gun laws in this country. Do you think that this will happen this time? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we're joined by a public radio colleague in Las Vegas. Joe Shaneman is host senior producer of KNPR State of Nevada. You've probably heard him and his team of producers on NPR over the last day and a half. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. First off, we're sorry to hear about uh, what's happened in your city, uh, Las Vegas, and to Nevada residents, also to the, the families of victims. Yeah, it's been very harrowing, uh, not just for Las Vegas, but really, I think, in many ways for the country, because so many people come to Las Vegas. People think of your city as a place to go for fun. It's the the great vacation getaway. Uh, today on the Strip, what is the scene? You know, in a lot of ways, you know, life does move on. In a lot of ways, uh, um it sort of has to go back to normal, and, and that's kind of what's happening right now. But uh, the people are really pay, paying homage in their own ways. They're stopping. Uh, the, the scene really isn't open yet where the shootings, where people were shot. People are stopping on a footbridge several hundred yards away and just sort of staring at the scene. And, and quietly, uh, I think, thinking about it, some are praying. You host a talk show, again, I I mentioned, uh, State of Nevada. Tell us how your listeners, how the community is responding to this. I'm actually stunned. Uh, Maybe maybe I shouldn't be. I've been a reporter for a long time, so I get kind of cynical. I'm really heartened by what people are doing here. It's it's literally amazing. Uh, Hundreds of people lining up to give blood. Uh, We've had people on our program talking about about they were just driving by they heard gunshots they went in um to the area to take people in their cars to the hospital you know um, i'm thinking about this way now but this person obviously didn't think about it but the blood you know filling this woman's backseat of, of a woman's car paloma Solamente, from las vegas who probably saved a man's life by taking him to the hospital after he was shot in the chest and I'm just, and uh, several million dollars already collected. This is really from around the world at a, a GoFundMe site. Um, it's just, I'm stunned and really hardened. It, it really, something like this seems to have brought this, done something to this city that 
no football team or anything else has ever been able to do. It's kind of brought them together. You mentioned that uh, this tragedy affects so many people because so many tourists come to Las Vegas, and we are hearing uh, the names of some of the victims uh, already, um, so many more uh, that have yet to be identified and their families uh, notified. Can you talk about the reach of this tragedy a little bit more? Give people the idea, uh, more of an idea of how Las Vegas really is an international city. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, just for, from our station here, we've gotten calls from around the world, from radio stations around the world, um, especially European. But there were 25,000 people at that uh, country music festival. And, and, and though some of the, a handful of the victims were from Nevada, almost uh, of the hundreds who were hurt and, and the 59 dead, um, almost all of them or most of them are from other parts of the country. A lot from Southern California, that's about 40% of the visitors to Southern Nevada are from Southern California. But literally, you can put your finger on the globe, point to almost any country, and that person come, has been to Las Vegas. It's, uh, you know, 44, 43, or 44 million people a year are now coming here, and it's been that way for decades, and the number keeps going up. So uh, it touches a lot of people. People just have a real fond memory, in, in most cases, of Las Vegas. And that's what they're thinking about, I believe, when they hear about the shooting. Uh, when the the news broke about this shooting, obviously a lot of the nearby hotels went on lockdown. This morning, uh, can, are these businesses back up and running? Yeah, they were up and running um, yesterday in the afternoon already. So uh, yeah, they, everything was shut down, which is is extremely rare for that to happen here. I, I was once at a casino where the the roof had caved in to, due to too much water, and people were still inside uh, playing the slot machines. This was many years ago, mm. but yes, um, everything's back up. Uh, we know that the the gunman is from a town or area northeast of Las Vegas. What has been the reaction from the community uh, to to this suspect? Uh, from that Mesquite, we talked to reporters who went to the little town of Mesquite, which is a really a sort of a, a newer town. When you drive through, it looks like it was built a week ago. And uh, it's a, a largely a retirement community. It does have casinos there. And the people there say the man, um, um, Stephen Paddock, was largely unknown. He lived in a really nice, well-kept house, but he, no, he didn't talk to his neighbors uh, to a person, almost nobody knew who he was or anything about him. Mm. And can you describe for us uh, the gun laws in Nevada? Because often we know, and you said you've been a reporter for some time, mm -hmm. uh, when these incidents happen, attention's always on what can be done uh, to keep people safe. And in Connecticut, after uh, the Sandy Hook uh, yeah. uh, elementary school shootings, the state of Connecticut made changes to the gun laws. But give us an idea of the, the gun culture in Nevada and if you anticipate any, any changes that will happen there. Yeah, I think we're a strong, strong gun culture, probably in the top 20 of gun ownership in the country. That's going to be a, I'm, I'm certain it's going to be a point of contention when the state legislature meets again. They just finished, they're going to meet again in 2019. Um, but you know, the politics of it, <clears throat> you just don't know how it's going to, how it's going to turn. Maybe the state will do something. Uh, there have, there has been a push and sort of uh, bills here and there to limit uh, people w with mental illness uh, histories from getting s certain guns. Maybe that will come up again. 
it, it's it's difficult to say. It's uh, it's it's very difficult to say. It's largely a conservative state, so um, that's really yet yet to see how that's going to turn out. This is where we live. On the phone with us, Joe Shaneman, host and senior producer of KNPR State of Nevada. He and his team of reporters and producers have been covering uh, this tragedy in Las Vegas over the last uh, day and a half. Uh, We're talking about uh, the aftermath, and you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Joe, what about questions when it comes to security? Uh, Casinos are uh, supposed to have the best security in the world, but then there's the question of, how can you can hotel uh, hotels change, or are they willing to when it comes to the idea that someone may be able to bring such a large amount of weapons and ammo that have been reported that this gunman had? That's a, another very good question. It's going to be one that the casinos and uh, county uh, lawmakers here, the Clark County Commission, oversees the Las Vegas Strip. It's not it's not in Las Vegas uh, proper. And it's probably one they're going to have to grapple with. Our metal detectors are a turnoff to tourists. People come here to relax, to get away from it all. Seeing metal detectors, will that bring them back to their their own cities and their their own home locales? It's it's really one that I'm sure is being thought about. Um, right now, people are more thinking about getting through the the emergency and the counseling is is starting to begin. But it has to be something addressed. Uh, you can walk, go into a casino now with your bags, as this man apparently did. Ten bags, um, 23 weapons in his room, and nobody would know. Nobody will know. So uh, it's going to be addressed. How, I really, it's, it's really hard to say. I want to take a listener call now. Mark's calling from Naugatuck. Uh, Mark, you're on the show. Oh, hi there. Um, I just wanted to respond to the question you posed as to whether um, Congress is going to do anything. Uh, in the wake of this mass killing. And, you know, the answer is a resounding no. Um, You know, 90% of Americans oppose common sense legislation like universal background checks, and Congress completely lacked the courage to pass even that. That's because the NRA has very deep pockets, and they're uh, more than willing to throw large sums of money at any candidate who opposes gun control legislation. And as long as that's the case, nothing is going to happen. And I would also encourage people to look up the word militia in a dictionary. Private citizen is not one of the synonyms. Mark, uh, thank you for your comments. Again, today we're talking about uh, Las Vegas, uh, this massacre that happened uh, uh, Sunday night uh, where uh, hundreds of people, concert goers, were injured. Uh, at least 59 um, have been killed. On the phone with us, Joe Shaneman, host and senior producer of KMPR in Las Vegas. He hosts the talk show there, State of Nevada. Uh, Joe, we just have a, another minute or so. So what happens now in your city? Uh, describe uh, uh, how you your reporters are going to be covering this story, and where the focus is? I think the focus now is going to be on uh, trauma counseling. It's going to be uh, something you brought up, which is which direction do the casinos go? How, where do they move? There, uh, people are very curious about the shooter. Everybody wants to know if there is any anything in his background, anything he left behind that indicates why he did this. And, and the Las Vegas police here have all of his computer files. I'm sure something will be coming out about that. But a lot of this is going to be grief counseling and, and how how to get through this. Uh, it's still a shock to me. I, driving into work, just hearing about it on the radio, uh, it, it even made me tear up. I just 
uh, it's it's a it's a difficult thing, and, and all of us are going to have to deal with it. Well, we're getting a tweet from a listener, uh, Teresa, who writes, "It's not the hotel's job to make sure people aren't traveling with stockpiles of weapons. It's on our lawmakers." But then again, uh, the action or inaction of our lawmakers is also in question. I want to thank Joe uh, Shaneman, host and senior producer of KNPR State of Nevada. Again, we thank you, and we're sorry again uh, for this tragedy uh, that has uh, happened in your city. Thanks so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, what can be learned from these events, specifically from the suspects who perpetuate mass shootings? And how have these latest mass casualty events impacted how first responders plan and respond to these incidents? We're going to have more after the break, and we want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the Las Vegas mass shooting. Officials say at least 59 people are dead, more than 500 injured, after a lone gunman shot at thousands of concert goers from his room on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel Sunday evening. Now, when these events happen, there are often comparisons to previous tragedies. What can be learned from them? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining the conversation now on the phone with us, David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, he recently wrote a piece, How Perpetrators of Mass Violence Learn from Each Other. David, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, this event in Las Vegas, that people are still trying to wrap their minds around the horror of it. Um, but when we look at recent events, it's the third mass attack on a concert. Remind us about uh, the other recent events uh, that have happened abroad, David. Yeah, so the first major concert attack, uh, you know, similar to this that we saw was in Paris in November 2015. And that was part of a, a larger terror attack where there were bombings at a, a soccer match and then also this massacre inside a, a rock concert by the Eagles of Death Metal. Um, and then in May, in Manchester in England, um, there was a bombing at an Ariana Grande concert. So we've seen uh, people starting to target concerts where you have a lot of people gathered together who tend not to be expecting uh, violence, and, and so there are a lot of soft targets. Uh, you also write about the psychological effect this has on the public. Right. I mean, you think about concerts as being places that are sort of sites of joy and people gather and, and they're a place where you can leave behind politics and, and the world around you. And so I think there's a special horror to um, to this kind of violence visiting uh, these kind of escapist locations and, and spots. Um, and there are also places where you have a lot of people close together, uh, often with, without an easy exit. And, and so that makes them particularly bloody when they happen. And the question now is uh, how uh, these events uh, are planned or organized, but really, are we safe no matter where we are, David? Well, you know, I think it's <clears throat> it's tough to say, and that's one reason these these um, attacks like this that feel random are so scary. Terror experts and criminologists do worry that when you see something like this, it inspires copycats, and that's true of school shootings. That's true of the sort of ramming attacks that we've seen overseas. And it's also true of concert shootings like this. If something is, is shown to work, um, violent people will pick up on that and they will imitate it. And you write that uh, these uh, shooters, these people who are intent on killing, uh, they don't have to fit a certain uh, ideology. Uh, so the other two attacks that you mentioned in Paris and Manchester, uh, those were affiliated with ISIS. Uh, so far, this gunman, they don't know the motivation. FBI says uh, no affiliation with ISIS and, or any other group. Right, exactly. And that's something we've seen with, with other forms of terror and, and other violence, too. 
Um, ramming attacks are something that, that we associate with ISIS, but in June, a man attacked congregants in a mosque saying he wanted to kill Muslims. Uh, he was not a Muslim. It was not an ISIS attack. And things like, you know, the car bomb is a, a venerable uh, terror tactic at this point. Um, it originated in the United States by anarchists in 1920, and now it's something that's used around the globe. So, so there's really no border. You know, the ideological borders don't affect the techniques that, that people use to kill people. Uh, when we talk about uh, copycat attacks, whether it's school shootings or other forms of mass terror, most recently with attacking uh, concerts, um, the media coverage also plays a role in giving publicity to these events, uh, naming uh, the the suspects, uh, the shooters, uh, the people who are, are doing this uh, to uh, innocent people. Um, what lessons can the media take, uh, David, and, and how we should be covering these stories? It's a really tough question because, you know, obviously this event is a news event. It's not something that we can ignore. But there is a worry that by, by covering it in certain ways, you glorify or, or you bring attention to it. Some experts think that it is best to not name shooters or to not emphasize the shooters and, and not talk about who they are because the feeling is that that encourages the sense of glorification and, and people will pick up on that and, and they will do heinous things because they want that sort of macabre recognition. Um, that's not. You know, some people disagree with that, but the the, you know, the problem in a situation like this, we we can't. It's impossible to cover this this horrible event without pointing out that people were killed at a concert. It, it, it's simply a fact, and so I think there is a real challenge for the press in these situations. David Graham is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Uh, he wrote recently how perpetrators of mass violence learn from each other. We'll tweet out the le- uh, link rather at where we live. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is where we live. We're talking about what happened in Las Vegas. The sheer number of victims in this mass shooting is startling. And we wanted to know more about how hospitals and first responders are training for these incidents. Joining us now is Dr. Lenworth Jacobs, director of the Hartford Hospital Trauma Institute. Dr. Jacobs, welcome to where we live. Hi, good morning. First off, you're a trauma surgeon. Your reaction to what happened in Las Vegas, Dr. Jacobs? Well, it's very, very difficult, and you really have to, your heart goes out to the families and the and the victims, because that usually, you don't really get the full effect of that, and they're just the anguish and sense of loss of the family and, and the victims, so one's heart goes out to them. It's, it's really awful. Mm. Looking at reports, uh, you know, we've been hearing that because the area wasn't deemed safe where these concert goers were, that um, often a lot of the concert goers were bringing out the injured to the first responders who then had to stage near this area, uh, near Mandalay Bay. Can you talk about staging and how problematic it can be when we're talking about the sheer number of people that were targeted, Dr. Jacobs? Well, you know, following Sandy Hook, um, the American College of Surgeons pulled together a group of people to increase survival after active shooter or mass casualty events. And what? And this is a multidisciplinary group with the, the FBI, National Security, police, fire, etc. What became crystal clear is a very, very simple fact. If you are bleeding to death, you generally speaking, it's a time-related phenomenon. So you have to get to care as fast as you can. But also, you want to stop that bleeding. So the whole key to it became a three-pronged effect. One, police obviously suppress the shooter, but they need to become involved in stopping bleeding. So now police nationwide are equipped and trained with hemostatic dressings, tourniquets, and the ability to use their hands to stop bleeding. 
So as soon as the shooting event has occurred, they're involved in the stopping bleeding event. The second is following Columbine, where the first responders, that's emergency medical technicians, etc., were held back for as long as 40 minutes. Well, obviously, you bleed continuously for that time with a very poor outcome. So now emergency medical responders are brought closer to the scene and get to care faster. Both of those things are good, and they, in fact, have happened. But clearly, what you want to do is stop the bleeding immediately. So the person who is going to do that is the person sitting beside you. Whether you're in a movie theater or at a concert or wherever, that's the person who is likely to be most helpful. We have found by uh, surveying the public that the public actually wants to do that. So as soon as you've got that piece of information, it becomes clear you have to train them and then equip them to do that. So it's inform, educate, and empower. Once you have a population that feels that, yes, I can do something, I've been trained to do it, and I have the equipment to do it, then you mitigate the panic part of it, and you mitigate this awful feeling that I can't do anything. And if you notice that all of these events, just regular ordinary citizens have jumped in and tried to do something, either with in Boston using your hands, a belt, etc., anything. And even although they're not hugely effective, they're certainly better than none at all. And that allows the public to be engaged. It stops bleeding early on in the course of the event. And generally speaking, if you get to the hospital or a trauma center alive, we can save you. Mm -hmm. So the whole name of the game is keep the blood in the body, get the patient to the center as fast as you can, and then the systems in place and the surgeons and nurses, etc., they will, in fact, do a very good job, as is evidenced in all of these events. You, you bring up my next point. If you can get to the hospital, uh, the staff there most likely will be able to save you. But the sheer number of people, Dr. Jacobs, that were injured um, in Las Vegas, uh, is it mind-boggling to you that this is something that you're dealing with in the United States uh, versus a war zone? The answer is a resounding yes, because you have to remember that emergency departments and trauma centers and hospitals are generally busy places. In Hartford Hospital, we see two to 300 patients a day, so, and that's on a regular day. So now if you bring in huge numbers of people, it ha- you have to go to a previously drilled and practiced routine, and that's called triaging, which is the French word to sort. So you sort out the patients. The sickest ones or those closest to death go to area A. The ones which are sick but not necessarily going to die right now go to area B. The walking wounded who are actually hurting but not really going to die, they go to area C. And you arrange the, the, the troops or the people so that the uh, you know, all the equipment availability and technology is in area A, and you can really start saving that person's life, whereas over in area C, you're more attending to, they're not minor, they're major things, and they obviously hurt, and they're very distressing, but they don't necessarily need all the, the skill and firepower that uh, that needs to be brought to bear on the dying patient. Dr. Jacobs, we just have a couple of minutes. I wanted to ask you, not all hospitals are um, 
have enough staff to deal with mass, mass casualties. Uh, what can be done uh, to bolster that training at hospitals around the country? Well, again, we've instituted a very simple process called bleeding control. And what that means, it's a very simple course. It's a one-hour course. teaches you to use your hands and your what's called a hemostatic dressing and a tourniquet. We've then placed these bleeding control kits right beside automatic external defibrillators. Mm -hmm. So now once the public sees an automatic external defibrillator, there should be a bag, bleeding control Mm -hmm. bag beside it. If the public is trained and empowered and has the equipment, they can go into action and become what we call immediate responders. And that really, really helps. It helps the patient, it helps the system But probably more important, it helps the person who is trying to help to feel good about themselves, to feel empowered, and in fact, they've saved lives. I'm speaking with Dr. Lenworth Jacobs, director of the Hartford Hospital Trauma Institute. Uh, Dr. Jacobs led a group of other physicians in 2013 to develop a a set of guidelines for medical response in active shooter situations. Uh, For listeners here in Connecticut, Dr. Jacobs, um, when, uh, again, these incidents happen uh, around our country, around the world, um, how do Connecticut officials then react in terms of further training? We've got about a minute to go. Well, I think the real key to it is uh, we actually have a website called bleedingcontrol.org. All of this information is on the website. It's downloadable and it's free so that anywhere from public officials to churches to schools to hospitals can get all this information and just download it. And then they can put into place these training sessions, which are basically for the random citizen. Anybody who wants to be helpful and feels the need to get involved, they can do so. I want to thank you, Dr. Jacobs, again, director of the Hartford Hospital Trauma Institute. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the aftermath of the Las Vegas uh, shooting where at least 59 were killed, more than 500 injured. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We've been wanting to hear from listeners on their reactions. Uh, Ben's calling from Wallingford. Ben, you're on the show. Hi. I just wanted to say I think we concentrate on the wrong things when we've seen these tragedies happen. It doesn't matter what the motivation is. It matters like what we do to prevent the next one to happen. Um, we need to control the flow of guns to people and restrict who can have guns. Just like we, after traffic accidents, we try to make the roads safer and we try to make drivers safer and the cars safer. We need to get rid of these things that are killing people and are only used for killing people, like the guns that this person used uh, in the tragedy here. We've seen in England and Australia that they have done things to restrict the use of guns by people, and it has saved many lives. So I don't know why we're not doing that here other than our lawmakers are too corrupt to do it. Mm Well, Ben, thank you for your call. I'm going to have uh, our next guest uh, answer um, some of, of your, your comment. Uh, on the phone with us now is David Hemingway, professor at Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. The reason we asked you to come on, because when we look at the rate of gun violence in the U.S., some would say it's a public health crisis. Is that your view? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we have about 100 people a day getting killed with guns and maybe 300 or more uh, being shot. 
day after day. There have been more people killed, more civilians killed with guns in the United States since 1968 uh, than were killed in all the wars um, in the United States history. Mm. This conversation keeps happening again and again. Uh, we just heard from a listener who says uh, we need to focus on limiting access. Uh, can we talk a little bit about um, some of the ways that could happen um, from your view, David? Oh, yeah, sure. sure. The, the nice thing is that we're one of two dozen high-income countries, and these other countries do so much better than we do. They don't have worse crime problems except for uh, – uh, we don't have worse crime problems than they do. We don't have worse violence problems except for our gun violence. And so all we'd have to do is look at any one of these other countries and see what they're doing. And they've been doing so much better. They, for example, have much stronger background checks than we do uh, for people who should get guns. They have much uh, make sure that everybody gets a background check. Uh, we just did a study and we found that 20% of gun transfers, um, there is no background check at all in the United States. Uh, they don't allow people to have such highly militarized guns as we do. Uh, and so they have much, they have still have some gun problems, but not nearly as much as we do. You mentioned uh, universal background checks. That's something that uh, members of the Connecticut delegation have brought up, among others in Congress, but that has yet to happen. What about whenever we hear about a, a mass shooting like this, uh, David, and again, there's the focus on how many rifles uh, this shooter had, uh, whether they were high-powered or not. Um, would a, a ban on assault weapon, would that help? Um, probably, uh, you know, probably, but, but only in the long run. Uh, we there's been some studies which suggest, and we, we are, have data on one, that uh, it's large-capacity magazines which make a big difference, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, when you have – makes it harder to get large-capacity magazines, that in these killings fewer people are killed. I want to bring into this to the, the discussion. In studio with me is Jennifer Tucker, historian of technology, law, culture at Wesleyan University. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. You heard from the listener uh, who says that uh, lawmakers are corrupt and they take money from certain uh, lobbyists, including the NRA, and that's why we're not seeing changes in, in gun laws. Why is it uh, not that simple? Um, well, there are a lot of reasons why um, there is an impasse in reducing the level of gun violence in the country. Um, as the earlier caller said, America is an exceptional uh, country when it comes to guns. It's one of the few countries in which the right to bear arms is constitutionally protected, the others being Guatemala and Mexico. But America's relationship with guns is unique in another way um, because among developed countries, the U.S. is far and away the most violent in large part due to the easy access many Americans have to firearms. Um, the, uh, you know, as, as one of the other callers said, um, we, we could look to other countries and the way that they confront head on the problem of, of gun violence. Um, for many of them carrying around um, guns with that are semi-automatic semi weapons uh, that that are used in, in warfare isn't isn't seen as a necessary precondition to modern life, mm -hmm. and yet in the U.S. Uh, in the last ten or fifteen years, there's been growing support for for gun rights. Um, the 2008 D.C. versus Heller decision um, was the first. Uh, Supreme Court case to recognize the Second Amendment as an individual right to own a gun for self-defense. And more and more Americans are saying that the reason why they're carrying a gun or buying a gun is to protect themselves, whereas 20, 30 years ago, the reason that they gave most often was for hunting or recreation marksmanship. 
Uh, when we talk about uh, the the gun debate in this country, often people will say, um, you know, the, the Second Amendment gives us the right to own and bear arms. We're hearing from a, a listener on Twitter who says there's no right to have the power of life and death over another human being. I wanted to go back to David Hemingway, professor at Harvard School of Public Health. Again, when, this, when these tragedies happen, uh, so often the focus is on gun control, gun control, gun control. David, are we talking about it uh, in the wrong way in terms of um, this focus on taking away guns, certain guns, from people? Well, there's, you know, the, the, a big problem is when people, a lot of people hear gun control, they think what that means is taking away people's guns. Uh, and there's lots of other things that can be done without taking away people's guns. We have, quote, car control, we have, uh, and we're not taking away people's cars. We're making cars safer. We're making, trying to make sure that everybody who drives a car has good training. We're trying to make the roads safer and on and on and on. Uh, in the same way, you know, gun policy uh, can do lots of things from getting more money to study guns, from making it Ill- Ill- illegal to manufacture certain guns, such as plastic guns, uh, to make sure that uh uh, guns uh, can be traced easily uh, when used in crime and on and on and on. Mm. Uh, when we look at the statistics from the CDC uh, at gun deaths, uh, a majority of them by suicide. That's right. Uh, we, it's always been, we always have more suicides than homicides and more gun suicides than gun homicides. In terms of people being shot, however, there's a lot more people being shot in gun accidents and in um, gun assaults. Mm. But for gun deaths, uh, suicide is an, an enormous pro- problem, gun suicide. I mean, half the people in the United States who die uh, from suicide die from guns. And the evidence there is overwhelming that a gun in the home increases the risk of someone dying in a suicide by something like threefold. Most of these um, mass shootings turn out to be uh, homicide suicides where the, the people know that they're going to kill themselves a- ahead of time. Uh, We heard from a listener who says gun control is important, but when you look at these incidents, many of these shooters have mental health issues, uh, which lends to the question, could we be doing a better job with allowing mental health services to be accessed by as many people as needed in this country? Sure. There's no question that there's lots of ways to attack this problem. Uh, One of the more effective ways is to do something about guns, because we know again that in lots, you know, in all the rest of the developed world, they have people who have mental health problems and they have people who act inappropriately and get angry and so forth. And what happens there is typically they don't have access to guns. So when they do something violent, not very few people die. Mm. Uh, Jennifer Tucker again is a professor at Wesleyan University. Uh, Coincidentally, uh, at the end of the month, uh, there's a, an annual symposium that happens at Wesleyan. The focus uh, is on guns in America. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the discussions that you hope to have? Sure. Well, this uh, event at Wesleyan follows on um, an earlier conversation among historians who've looked at different aspects of the gun debate in the U.S., and we're hoping with this event to bring together people from different political perspectives to find out whether there is any common ground on this gun issue, which is among the most divisive in the country. So we're inviting public health experts as well as historians, people who work on the sociology of gun movements, and a variety of others. Um, so we're, we're hoping to have a, a robust discussion of this challenging issue. Um, and Connecticut, of course, is in many ways a microcosm of the, the larger issue. Um, it was, in many ways, um, the incubator for the gun industry um, and, in many ways, the kind of Silicon Valley for gun innovation. 
Um, talking about our history with coal. In coal and Winchester, um, Smith and Wesson, the Connecticut River Valley, even uh, Middletown was the home of Simeon North, who supplied the first pistols to the U.S. Armed Forces um, with tens and thousands of, of handguns and rifles for 30 years, had a factory there. So um, in many ways, there's a history of industrialization here, and this is also Connecticut has been the uh, has witnessed the effects of gun violence with um, with the shootings at Newtown. I, I would just um, maybe just add um, to what um, Professor Hemingway uh, was was just saying, uh, and just to, to kind of add to it that um, early early in the in the nineteenth century, in the eighteenth century, in the eighteenth century, when when some of the early um, de- debates about guns were, were happening, the firearms were not especially a good w- murder weapon. Um, they were hard to load. You had to reload them. The, they wouldn't fire if the powder was was wet. Um, and it's only been in recent years, really, that the gun has become such an effective murder weapon, starting in the 19th century with the repeating revolver. And then, you know, if we look at um, large capacity magazines, those are a relatively new phenomena, too. Prior to the 1980s, the most popular type of handgun was the revolver, which typically holds six rounds of ammunition in a rotating cylinder. But during the 1980s, the firearms industry began mass producing and marketing semi-automatic pistols, which can accept ammunition magazines and their new triggers and a whole range of ways that the gun industry is innovating. And it would be very interesting to find out what sorts of innovations the gun industry could do to make guns safer. There have been uh, widespread reports uh, over the last uh, few years that um, after these tragedies, uh, when lawmakers begin to talk about ways to change our gun laws to make people safer, that sales of firearms mm-hmm. go up. Mm-hmm. David, do you want to uh, weigh in on yeah, that? I mean, that's that's very true. Um, I think when, you know, uh, having uh, a black president was, was very, very good for gun sales uh, in the United States. And then my understanding is when Trump became president, uh, sales have gone down. But yes, the, there's, su- there's this fear suddenly that if you talk about uh, gun policy, that somehow uh, people's ability to obtain firearms will be, you know, uh, will be changed, and and so people start buying guns. Uh, most of these guns probably are being bought by people who already own guns. The, the evidence indicates that the, the percent of people who are gun owners has been going down over the last 30 years. Now we have only about a little over 20 percent of adults own guns. A little, a little about a third of households have guns, but the number of guns per household has been going up. So now. It's probably close to a mean of five guns per household that has guns. I want to fit in a call. Uh, John is calling from Bridgeport. John, you're on the show. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Hi there. So I'm uh, 59 years old. I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I grew up as a hunter. Uh, I had a 410 shotgun when I was five. My father taught me how to handle a gun safely. I'm appalled at the accessibility of these kinds of weapons. It, there's no reason for it. And, you know, our our leaders' inability to do the right thing is is broadly applicable, whether it's guns or the environment or civil rights or anything. We just can't – we can't do the right thing. We're a functional culture right now, and it's really disturbing. Well, John, thank you for your call. We just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to go back to Jennifer Tucker from Wesleyan. Uh, you know, after Sandy Hook, I mean, not just in uh, Connecticut, but around this nation and in different parts of the world, they were wondering, is that the breaking point when you see children dying in school? And it wasn't the breaking point. Jennifer, what do you think will be? 
Yeah, I mean, looking at these statistics where you know, if, we, if we average it out over the number of, of deaths per year, 32,000, that's the equivalent of a jumbo jet crashing every week with Americans when you average it out, people who are killed with guns, uh, gun violence, suicide, and, and the rest. I think the, the, the question, kind of coming back to what the, the caller just, just said, at some level we can talk about the laws, we can talk about the technology, we can talk about the culture and the anxieties, but at some level we, we as, as, a, as a community, as a society, have to ask ourselves the question, is this the kind of world that we want to live in where we're an outlier? Mm-hmm. We, are, we are an outlier in these numbers of gun deaths, so what are we going to do about it? Um, and that's the question we, we need to put before everything else, I think. Jennifer Tucker is a historian of technology, law, culture at Western University. Again, uh, the university has a Shasha seminar on human concerns coming up later this month. We'll tweet out a link to that. Jennifer, thank you for coming in today. Thank you. Also, David Hemingway, professor at Harvard School of Public Health. Unfortunately, David, this won't be the last time we have this conversation. No, it, it is so, so, so sad. I want to thank you for your time as well, David. Thank you. I'm Lucien Alpethanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks also to Jonathan McNichol and Katie Tolarski.